Welcome back on Shots. This is Seth Partnow. Uh, I've been off for uh, a couple of weeks traveling, was in the UK, got to see the Queen's funeral uh, from a distance. Um, it was very extra uh, and spent some time back in Alaska for the first time in a while. But now I'm back and I'm joined by a very special guest today. That sounds patronizing, but go with it. A former co-worker of mine for, for many years with the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, now with a new and somewhat unique job in uh, in college, uh, Daniel Marks. Danny, how you doing? Good. Great to have you here. Uh, great to be here. Um, excited to uh, join this conversation. Um, so, I don't want to. I don't want to get your job wrong. So why don't you you um, explain exactly for whom and who you work and and what you're doing now. And then we'll, so we'll, we'll the, come back to it later. Uh, I'm the chief program strategist for Howard men's basketball. I started about six weeks ago. So my responsibilities range from NIL planning, uh, professional development for our players on and off the court, um, the liaison to the alumni community, reaching out to NBA teams, scheduling visits for them to come to practice. Um, a lot of our community engagement uh, initiatives and then day-to-day operations, scheduling, helping sort of manage the flow of the program while also thinking about the big picture goals that our, our head coach, Kenny Blakeney, has and trying to figure out ways that we can achieve those goals and not be haphazard in doing so. Sure. So speaking of, of, of not being haphazard, I like – this is a sharp left turn, but since, you know, it, it, it happened last night and your role with the Bucks, it was very scouting intensive. Um, I think we saw something of like scouting Nirvana last night in Vegas with the uh, with the uh, the Victor and Scoot show. Um, so, first of all, you know, as a as a talent evaluator, if you can put that hat back on for a little bit. Um, what do you think? Well, Seth, I mean, we're ignoring the fact that Vanderbilt alum and close friend John Jenkins had 21 points last oh, night. Oh, well, yes, of course. Night. Um, <laughs> so that, I'm a little surprised that wasn't the lead story uh, for you on this podcast with me as the guest. But How could I? I, dig- I digress. Um, yeah, it. I mean, obviously it's really exciting to see a guy like Wembanyana do <laughs> the things he does at his size. You know, it's like he has like a Rudy Gobert-like defensive impact in the Kevin Durant like offensive game while being taller than both. Um and seems I, like a good player. Yeah. And I you know the thing for me that's like interesting is like you look at baseball and I'm not a huge baseball fan by any means, but Shohei Otani from the Angels, what he's able to do being an elite hitter and an elite pitcher like, you know, is Victor Wembanyama like the Shohei Otani of basketball where he is like, can be like a top five defender and top five offensive player in the league. Um, and there's not a, a ton of those guys that come around very often and especially not at seven, four. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty neat to watch him. And obviously he can, he can shoot and do a lot of things and, um, you know, where we were picking with the Bucks the last few years, like watching that game would have been just like a fun kind of, <laughs> oh, it's good to see what the teams that are tanking are looking forward to. Um, but, you know, I'm sure there's a group of 
six or seven NBA teams have probably had their entire front office or close to uh, out of those games last night. And there was uh, 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 sort of like uh, during one of our summers with the Bucks, where we would watch an Euro bid and, and, and speaking recklessly about Luca. Cause it's like, well, we're not going to get to where we are. So uh, is, is, is he the best player or a top 10 pick? And these arguments went on for, as you can attest, went on for uh, days and days and weeks and weeks and months and months. And that's, that's kind of the fun part of, of working in basketball is getting to, is getting to have those kind of discussions. Yeah. Um, and th- those discussions still, you know, go on to, to this day, those discussions we had starting in the cousin center in that back corner, lots of lively debates. <laughs> um, that took place. But yeah, I mean, that's the fun thing for me about scouting is you can be, I loved Josh Richardson in the draft and like no one else in our group really likes Josh Richardson. And like, he had a great couple of years in Miami and it was like, wow, you got that one right. And then the next year I really liked AJ Hammond and thought he was going to be the next modern NBA five. And it turns out he didn't really like basketball and was out of the league in a year and a half. So you can kind of fall in love good or bad uh, with a player and you want to see that player succeed. If you've kind of the proverbial stand on the table uh, for your guy um, in your case, Grant Williams. And uh, you, you have those guys that you kind of fall in love with early and they become quote your guys and you will fight for the death for them to have an NBA career. Um, even if they, uh, they fizzle out. I would like the record to show reflect that that the first of my guys with the Bucks was was different Williams. It was Kenrich Williams, but that's uh, that's uh, that's going way back. Um, so the the, the the thing that's most interesting about that is you. I mean, you talked about AJ Hammonds and not really liking basketball. One of the things the the areas where you were kind of um, instrumental with with the Bucks was was kind of trying to get that kind of detail about about players, and so. Um, I guess the question is, okay, for a lot of the country, last night might have been their first, you know, real exposure to Wembenyama and 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 uh, and Scoot Henderson. Um, but you know, those guys, you you've known about those guys for how long? So Scoot, I've known about for I want to say two two and a half years. Um, you know, there was a big story. I forget which outlet wrote like a big feature story on him. Uh, obviously, was the youngest player to sign a professional contract, signing at 17 years old with G League Ignite, whereas most guys they sign were 18 and automatically draft eligible the following year. So he kind of did things differently, comes from a big family in the Atlanta area. So known about him, uh, yeah, probably two, two and a half years. Wembanyana, I think, international players tend to get on the radar a little earlier because they start playing with club teams or like U15, U16 events like at at a younger age. So your European scouts sometimes will know these guys from when they're like eight or nine and they go to a camp or they start to get into the national team pipeline. So Wembanyana, I mean, I remember hearing his name come up in a meeting and it was like, he's like Porzingis and Giannis and he's like the next unicorn. Um, And this was, you know, when he was first like a, you know, probably six eleven stick figure and his body had kind of yet to fill out, but you could see the 
level of physical tools and just overall talent um, on display with him when you watched the the highlight clips. Um, so, but you know, most of these guys, like I would say, if you're a four year college player or you're an international player who's auto eligible when you turn 22, like the Rolodex of reports and Intel is going to go back sometimes six, seven, maybe eight or nine years um, from where the first report until the last report a player gets in the draft. And I think one of the things that can be tough is you can kind of fall in love or fall out of favor with a player in year one or two. And then you kind of have to talk yourself out of that bias of like, okay, well, I watched him three years ago and I thought he sucked. But now he's actually pretty good in being able to admit like that you're wrong or that a player has grown and evolved. And for me, a guy that comes to mind was Ayo Dosunmu when he was in the draft after his sophomore year before returning to school. I was like, he's not a point guard. I think he's overrated as a defender. I don't trust him as a shooter. Like I think he has some sloppy habits on both ends of the floor. And then the following year, I thought he improved in all of his areas and I ended up having him in, in my top 20 and, you know, other guys can kind of go the other way. Like there was a, um, uh, a kid, I'm blanking on his name right now, uh, that I, um, like Perry Ellis, like I really like Perry Ellis. That, that's who it was. Uh, I don't know why I was blanking on his name. Cause I saw him play approximately 700 times during his 17 year career at Kansas. But, um yeah like Perry Ellis you know you see him as a freshman and he's impacting winning and he's playing a role and like obviously a highly productive player but then you're like okay he's six six he's not a great athlete he doesn't really have a position to defend and like I really want to like Perry Ellis but uh, I don't know if I can still like justify it so you kind of have to overcome that first impression or those first couple impressions because sometimes you can be prone to not recognizing your progression or digression in a player's game because you've seen them for so many times so last question on this and then we'll kind of get back to to where you're where you're currently is is um in you know in uh in 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 my book i i uh, one of the people i talked to in uh, in the chapter about the draft because he was uh, in part, one of the people who was available to talk, no longer not working for a team anymore, was was our former uh, coworker BJ Domingo. And one of the things that, that we talked about is, um, and some of it made it into the book, some didn't. But like figuring out, you get all these information about the, about these players, whether it's on the floor, off the floor, you know, background reports, which was uh, you know among your forte, picking out the stuff that matters from the stuff that doesn't. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very dependent on the person, too. Like, what matters to me didn't necessarily matter to our GM, John Horst, or what one of our scouts liked might not be what another scout likes or looks for in a player. And I think you see certain organizations that tend to be like, we're going to take a chance on talent, no matter what other red flags there may be, medical or intel generally being the two big ones. Um and then you have other teams that are like, we're going to be cultural purists. And if we don't think a guy is going to fit into what we look for in a player and a person, we're not going to touch him. Um, so, you know, it kind of depends. A lot of it's situational. A lot of it's on the support staff that you have. I mean, I remember 
when we were uh, together, I believe it was the 2016 draft, and like DeJounte Murray was a guy that we looked at, and there was some concerns surrounding his his past, and he's been very open about you know his time um, in juvie and w- what that experience meant to him, and people writing him off, and how that's kind of motivated him. But he was a top 10 talent who slipped to 29 because of those concerns, whereas the Spurs felt like they had an organizational infrastructure that could support and nurture him to bring out the best in him. Um, And other teams maybe didn't think they had that in place. So a lot of it kind of depends, but there's always a guy where you're like, man, I can't believe this guy fell this far. And it's usually for one of those Bo Callahan, uh, you know, reasons. If you've seen draft day, like <laughs> how many t- of your teammates showed up to your birthday party and like that may not matter to some teams or like, I don't care how many teammates showed up because his teammates caught five touchdowns on game day. And others are like, well, you can never be the leader. if Nobody comes to your birthday party. There's, there's varying degrees of what people think are important. I think to me that hardest part but also like the most enjoyable part was that intel gathering and trying to figure out who these people are and one of the things i i learned and kind of stole from a friend of mine matt mckay who's the founder of former nba scout and founder of prospective insight uh college um, recruiting uh website and he said i always end a call with this question if you had to summer, if there's one story in your mind that encapsulates who Seth part now is as a person, what would it be? And it kind of makes you think about a specific <laughs> example, a, uh, an anecdote, something more personal than just what's his work ethic. Like, Oh, well, he's a good worker. And it's like, okay, if he's a good, you know, I'll give you an example about Jose Alvarado. I loved Jose Alvarado. I was, he was a pound the table on the fist guy for me um, or pound the fist on the table, uh, not pound the table on the fist, but, and a story he, they played Clemson and lost on a buzzer beater after he had missed two free throws down the stretch. And someone at Georgia tech said they got back like three in the morning and he was distraught and spent like three hours in the gym working on his free throws where Passner had to like basically tell him to go home. And then they went on a, I think it was an eight game winning streak and won the ACC tournament championship because of, you know, him and the level of play that he, he had. And, you know, another story last year was player, a well-known player, um, really high achieving academic kid. And I, I always love talking to academic advisors because they're much more candid. They're not as invested in if a player succeeds in the NBA or not as someone on the coaching staff is. And they were like, this guy was a star in the classroom, but one of his teammates never got above a 2.0 was struggling, didn't really take it seriously. And this player sort of started mentoring and taking the struggling player under his wing and would bring him to study hall with him, would bring him to tutoring sessions and sort of teach him how to study and teach him how to learn. And it was the first time in his life this past spring semester that that other student was able to get uh, above a 3.0 GPA. So those kind of stories are always what was most interesting to me in learning about these guys, because you get a lot of canned answers oh you know he's a good player oh yeah he gets along well with his teammates but 
trying to find those little details or do a little digging is, is where you can uncover some potentially valuable information. I'm absolutely terrified as to what you would share as the, the one story to encapsulate me. So we won't go there. Um, <laughs> sharp break turn. Um, so your, 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 your new gig. Um, first of all, I think NIL has, has obviously been in the news a bunch and that's probably the biggest headline grabbing piece of the, of, of kind of the position. Is that fair to say? Um, yeah, I would say so. Um, is it as wild west as it seems? Yeah. So I think one of the things like right now we're, we're just trying to get an understanding of, I mean, there's not a ton of, of guidance out there about what can or can't be done uh, at the NCAA level. And each state has different laws that apply to NIL. Some states, high school kids can capitalize on it. Some states, it's just college. Um, some states, the schools can solicit deals on behalf of athletes. Other states, the schools can't solicit deals. Um, there's not one uniform set of guidelines that you're working with. And obviously, D.C. is not a state. Um, it is a, a district. So that's another kind of layer. So I think right now, a lot of it's just figuring out what makes sense for us at Howard University and having conversations with people in the space, trying to educate ourselves as a staff and determine, okay, this is how we'd want to move forward to best benefit our program and our players. Because I think you can sort of get in above your heads if you try to be like, oh, we need to say we announced a collective or we need to say we announced this or that. But if you don't have any planning or you do it haphazardly, like there could be some changes down the road or you do things without making sure you're fully compliant. Like you, you don't want to do those things. So right now I would say I'm in kind of Intel gathering mode on the NIL space. I'm reading articles. I'm talking to people in branding. I'm talking to people with different brands, talking to NIL marketplaces, just trying to get as much of an idea about what this looks like and what the best path forward for, for our players and our program would be. And I'm lucky enough to work for, for a head coach and Kenny Blakeney, who's a very outside the box thinker and really creative and encourages me having those conversations and facilitating those discussions. Like last week, you know, we had our players get set up on open doors, which is an NIL uh, marketplace with profiles where they can apply for, for different deals with brands and fans and, uh, and, um, sponsors and others can interact with them. we got them all set up with LinkedIn profiles to, you know, help them start thinking about life off the court and potentially set them up for some summer internships and just exposing them to resources that they can use to, to better themselves off the floor. I think that touches on, on something that I think has been a um, it's, it's not something I paid a ton of attention to, but it's at this point, it's just hard to notice. I mean, I occasionally, you know, on, on my social media platform, I'll occasionally get like a LinkedIn request from or a Twitter follow from like, a, you know, a, a, a NHS class of of 25 shooting guard. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a LinkedIn file or a Twitter account that has like, you know, highlight reels and stuff like that. And just how, how much social media has, or, or, and these, these, these networks and applications have kind of allowed take all, almost a little 
more ownership of, of that process. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, the best example of that is Jason Preston, who's now with the LA Clippers, like barely played high school basketball uh, at a Boone high school in Orlando. Shout out to Skylar Rimmer, former coworker, also a Boone high school alum. Um, and had like a summer AAU highlight tape that he put on YouTube and had gotten seen by Will Ryan, now the head coach at uh, Green Bay and formerly assistant coach at Ohio. And he was like, oh, this kid seems kind of intriguing. Um, I remember when we interviewed Mo Wagner, when he came in for a workout in Milwaukee and the way he ended up at Michigan was he had emailed a, a highlight tape of himself to John Beeline. And he was impressed and uh, started to recruit him. And he's like, yeah, that was really the how we kind of initiated the conversation. So I think you know, I've since I've accepted this job, the number of like six foot two shooting guards class of 2024 with a 2.87 GPA that are following me has probably increased uh, a little bit. Um, definitely, you know, a lot of those players follow, you know, the team account or different recruiting services, but they kind of, if you're not a top 200 kid, uh, and you're looking to get recruited, a lot of it you have to do yourself, um, especially if you're looking at the D2, D3, NAI, JUCO levels. Like you just, and with the transfer portal now, a lot of programs, it's like, well, I could take this kid who has some theoretical upside to maybe help me in two or three years, or I could take a guy that just averaged eight points and seven rebounds playing Division One basketball and plug him in to be my starting center for a team that I think could be pretty good next year. Um, so I think now the onus is on high school kids even more to, to market themselves because teams are being hesitant to give out scholarships at times because of the transfer portal. And also busy. <laughs> that's, that's, there's just so much, so much, so many avenues of, of basketball and, and um, sorting through, like it's always, it's always a little random how players end up at, at different places. Like how, you know, the, the, how does, how does a Damian Lillard end up at, at, at Weaver state? I mean, there's, you know, you go back and read interviews and, and, and see how, but just like the, the random way in which the one scholarship offer of this guy who turns out to be an a mid major halfway across the country, because you know, one uh, because the, the assistant coach at that college had played on an AU team with with a guy's high school coach or something like that, and like that's a heck of a way to run a railroad. It's certainly not the uh, not the most efficient way for to for for talent to be found or scouted. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot of stories like that. You know, how do certain players end up at uh, you know certain universities and it's kind of an interesting thing to study and look at. And especially like, you know, study, how do guys do when they transfer up? How do they do when they transfer down? You know, looking at those different types of uh, impacts that players can have, but it's, there's no rhyme or reason to it. I think, you know, certain programs have, you know, like I think Mick Cronin over the years has done a good job of recruiting like, really tough, rugged guys that aren't necessarily one-and-done types um, and kind of built this program on that at Cincinnati with guys like Justin Jackson and Sean Kilpatrick and Trey Scott. 
Duran Cumberland. Um, you have kind of programs that have, you're like, okay, this is a Cincinnati player. Or, you know, Wisconsin, you know, you have the Ethan Haps and the Frank Kaminsky's and the Ben Busts. Um, First of all, don't, 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 uh, don't lump Frank Kaminsky and Ethan Happ together. How dare you? Um, it's uh, uh, two very uh, controversial Wisconsin players in, in the Bucks analytics department for opposite reasons. <laughs> Ethan Happ and Frank Kaminsky. Um, so I think that's actually a great, a great segue into sort of what you're doing now, because it seems like um, kind of those, those stories and that uh, of, of being a, a director of strategy for a college team. But the, the, more, the more meat and potatoes is kind of the, the journey of, of, of each player takes kind of, you know, how they get how they get to Howard, how they progress through. And then as you're talking about, you know, you, you were talking earlier about like, uh, you know, professional development, whether that's a profession in in sports or 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 not so. So I, I, I think that's a I mean, is it fair to say that's kind of the 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 real meat of your of your of your new position? Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that for sure. I mean, we have a, an interesting group, you know, so we have um, uh, a guy named Steve Settle. Uh, he was Coach Blakeney's first recruit at Howard four years ago. Um, when he was in high school, he was 5'9". As a freshman, he's now probably like 6'10". Um, he came to college at 140 pounds. Now I believe he's at 183 pounds. Uh, very skilled player. I'm, I'm sorry, 6'10", 180. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but very skilled guy, you know, has a chance, um, at the next level, I I think, and just a impressive journey that he's kind of taken to get to this point from hardly playing high school basketball to now being, you know, a second team all MEAC and potential uh, player of the year candidate this year. And then we have another kid, Jelani Williams, who was high school teammates at Sidwell Friends with Sadiq Bay had a series of knee injuries, um, had to sit out his first uh, four years of college due to knee injuries and COVID, and I think went like 1,100 days between playing a high school game and playing their season opener at Penn last year for uh, at Florida State. And uh, local D.C. kid, phenomenal human being, transferred from Penn um, here and you know, has taken on a, a real leadership role within the program so far. And uh, last week we got to participate. You know, the thing I've realized about being at Howard, it's a very unique place in that the alumni connection to the university is very, very strong. I mean, you know me, I love Vanderbilt. I put myself through a lot of miserable Vanderbilt football Saturdays. I'll always talk about the Commodores if they have a big win, but we go to places with the team or with their players. And it's like, Oh, you went to Howard. Oh, my cousin went to Howard or, Oh, I'm a Howard alum. And last week we got invited to a couple different events with the congressional black caucus. We had a chalk it up talk about uh, African-American male voter engagement prior to the midterm where our guys got to meet with Jamie Harrison, uh, the head of the DNC, another diversity in sports panel uh, with CC Sabathia they got to talk to him for a few minutes after the panel, and then um, a uh, panel on black paternal health, hosted by Congresswoman Lauren Underwood, and the photographer for the event was a Howard alum, so she literally bogarted 
every person of any significance into taking pictures with our team on the red carpet. So it was like, you take a picture with Howard, you take a picture with Howard, you take a picture with Howard. And then there was this one woman, I, I don't know who she is. Uh, I didn't get her name, but she was also a Howard alum. And she was like, I got to get the guys on my TikTok page. And she was probably in her like mid sixties and she was filming TikTok videos with our players. And it was just cool to see that the response that they get and how, appreciative people are about them being in the community and using the legacy of Howard, you know, a place that's produced people like Thurgood Marshall and um, Chadwick Bozeman, Felicia Rashad, uh, there, uh, uh, Jim uh, Clyburn, um, Elijah Cummings, like great leaders in American history and Kamala Harris, obviously the VP so for them to kind of continue that legacy and, and it's cool to work for a coach who believes in the importance of, of the off court development as well um, with our guys and to be able to be empowered to take them to these events and expose them to different things um, is something I've always enjoyed doing um, myself and, and getting them to kind of see life outside of, 94 by 50. Sure. Uh, speaking of, I mean, just outside of 94 by 50, it, it, the sort of concept of a front office type of role, because this is, this is, you know, the traditionally college sports, major college sports, be it basketball or football has been very much coach does everything. And it seems like that's changing a little and you're and, and and we were talking beforehand that, that you aren't the, the first person to have this kind of role at a Division One men's basketball, but there aren't that many. Yeah, I think it's a role that's growing. You know, you see some teams naming general managers um, for their program. You know, I think most notably Rachel Baker down at Duke University probably got the most buzz um, when she was named GM after her career in, uh, at Nike. Um, and I think it's, so much of a college program is not about it. You know, in the NBA, you can really be a specialist, right? Like the head coach obviously has to worry about certain things, but for the most part, they can coach. They don't have to worry about study hall. They don't have to worry about dorms. They don't have to worry about alumni engagement, boosters, relations. Um, it, it's a much more streamlined sort of thing where it's, I would now, say they do, but but it's the the uh, the, the the boosters are, are are just happen to own the team. Uh, so yeah, probably equally demanding as uh, as as far as the boosters of a of a college go, perhaps. Yes, but usually it's one or two. Right. Whereas here you could have a divergent group of ten to fifteen, and then you have, you know, you're dealing with the parents, and you're trying to recruit your next group of players, and all of that. So there's a you know, you're the head coach in college has traditionally been the GM and the head coach. Like they manage the roster, they coach the roster, they kind of do it all. I think now with NIL being a totally new platform, a lot of programs are like, okay, we're really good at the X's and O's and identifying talent thing, but we've been in the business for 30 years or 20 years, whatever it may be. We've never had to come up with a marketing plan for our players, or we've never had to educate them on financial literacy 
because it's never really been that applicable. They get their scholarships, they get the Pell Grant, they get whatever it may be, and we provide them with, you know, meals and books. And then they worry about that when they become pros. But now there's a whole other element that coaches need to worry about. So I think they're realizing, like, my plate is probably spread too thin and I need to have people focus on these areas so that I can continue to focus on what I know and what I'm good at. Is, is it, is it fair to say that there was probably always the need for some of this? It's just, it became impossible to ignore with NIL. I mean, you mentioned like, I mean, I, you know, the, um, I financial literacy is, is something that I, I think is not unique a unique need to cost. I think it's something that is probably uh, would be useful for everyone. Um, and it's, it's, but the, the, um, maybe these were things that, that you, that maybe shouldn't have been let slide for as long as they have been, but were, and now, well, we have to do this, this NIL thing. We have to get, Oh, there's all this other stuff too. Crap. We're not doing any of that. Let's get someone, let's get someone to help with that. Is is that is is there some aspect of that? Would you say? Yeah, you I mean, I I'm sure there is at at certain places. I think it's just right. Like if you think about college athletics in the last three years, you've had what I would say are three seismic shifts. You had the COVID pandemic allowing players to basically have a free year um, that they can use again. Like no matter if you play thirty games or three games, you get that year back. Um, you know, the COVID environment on campuses was a very isolating experience. A lot of schools were remote learning. You were stuck in the dorms. You didn't get that true sort of college feel. Then you have the transfer rule, which is that you can transfer without having to redshirt or sit out a year. And then you have name, image, and likeness. And that's on top of sort of the overall kind of shift in the country and a lot of tough conversations uh, on social justice in the wake of George Floyd. So there's a lot of, and sort of renewed athlete active box when George Hill and the team, you know, protested the um, game in the Orlando bubble after the shooting of Jacob Blake. And I think all of those things have combined to come at one time. And any one of those would have been a pretty seismic event in college because the NCAA has operated in the same way for a very long time. There've been some changes here and there, but nothing as, as broad and earth shattering as these uh, things that I've mentioned. So I think the realization that, okay, there's a lot of stuff hitting us all at once. And we've been, I, I think there was a sense in college athletics and I was obviously on the other side in in the NBA But just from speaking to college coaches and knowing a lot of college coaches, it was like, yeah, NIL is probably going to come and we're probably going to have to deal with it, but we don't know when it's going to come. So until it comes, like, we're not going to really think about it. And then it's come and it's like, I think you have teams that prepared and teams that didn't. And um, you're kind of kind of seeing that, but there's there's still so much more to learn and so much more to know. Uh, about this space and to be creative with it, um, which is which is exciting for me because it's like I was my first year with the Bucks. We had a nine-person front office, including me as an intern, and we won 15 games. And then seeing it go from that to 
a championship caliber team and being able to be at Howard, which just had their first winning season in 20 years last year and sort of help build on the foundation at this university where a lot of great things have happened, but historically the basketball team has been, um, you know, not very good. And to be part of what coach Blakeney is building here has been a very reinvigorating and, and fantastic experience so far. Do you think, and maybe this is a question that, that you can't answer or, or don't want to answer, but um, it seems like the benefits of building up sort of a, a structure, an organization, a, a, a program in the true sense of the word um, would mitigate towards the slowing down of the, the coaching carousel a bit. Um, it seems like so many of these things implement right away. Uh, but if a coach stays for two years and then gets a better, then to a bigger job and then gets an FT job and then gets fired a year and a half with two and a half years left on this contract, um, then, you know, it, it, it seems like it's, it's hard to build existing permanence. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're probably, you know, you look at teams like Wichita State in the mid-2010s with Ron Baker and Fred Van Vliet and Shaq Morris and Tequil Cotton, and you had, like, this group and core that was together for three or four NCAA tournament runs. You had, uh, when I was at Vanderbilt, you had... And how many TBT runs? (laughs) Quite a few. Um, You know, you have John Jenkins, Jeff Taylor, Festus Azili, Lance Goldberg, Brad Tinsley. They were all together for three years. Um, and kind of got to be able to build up to an SEC championship in 2012. And, you know, you saw it a little bit like with UCLA last year where they returned, I think, their top seven from the Final Four team the previous year. But then you see teams that are, you know, Iowa State two years ago was 2-22. and And then last year had basically a whole new roster and were an NCAA tournament team. Um, So you can kind of, rebuild on the fly to an extent because of the, you know, the transfer rules. But I think it's, it's so much of it's about fit both for the player and the coach and the university. Like it's just like anything, right? Like we're in a job in the NBA that could seem like the greatest job. um, But you're like, I'm not feeling fulfilled or I'm not, learning the way that I want to or developing. And like on the outside, it would be like, okay, you know, cause I, I left the Milwaukee Bucks for Howard. And a lot of people are like, why would you do that? Like you're leaving the 2021 world champions to go. And I was like, I want to go somewhere where I feel like I can make an impact and touch all the different areas of the program. And uh, I'm very happy with the choice I made. Not now for two and a half years, I was petrified of leaving the NBA because, oh, what if I miss it? What if I never get back? And I sort of was, it was like paralysis by overanalysis. And so I think with a lot of these situations and these jobs and players, like you could have a, another Bob McKillop, another Jay Wright, where they have a great situation and stay there for years. Or you could have like guys that kind of hop around, whether it's players or coaches. I think what you're seeing now is a lot of the coaching movement that's happened uh, over the last 
20 odd years. Now players can do the same thing. So it's like a lot of coaches are lamenting, Oh, well, you know, I don't know if this is good. And it's like, well, how many jobs have you had in the last 10 years? Oh, you've been at four different schools in the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, so I, I, that's a long winded answer of saying, I think it's very dependent. I, I don't know how it'll play out. I mean, I think you can have other situations like you look at UNC and, um, with some of the NIL stuff and they made a run to the national championship and other than Brady Manick um, running out of eligibility, that, that whole core is back. And without NIL, I, I don't think there's any chance that Armando Baycott or Caleb Love are coming back to school. Um, Leaky Black, like guys like that. And so you could kind of keep teams together because of that, but it also could bring teams apart. You look at the St. Peter's Peacocks, um, go to the Elite Eight, Coach Holloway goes back to take over his alma mater uh, at Seton Hall. And I think like none of their top nine players, like Doug Edderton Bryant and Matthew Lee, I believe is Missouri State or St. Bonaventure and uh, Casey and Defoe's at Seton Hall. And uh, you're kind of scattered. The twins are at LaSalle. Like they're scattered kind of all over the map. And you think like this team just made one of the best, most historic runs in NCAA history that they'll remember for the rest of their lives and will remember as basketball fans for the rest of our lives. And six months later, none of them are there. <laughs> and so it's like, uh, so for, for the standpoint of like this, the, of the standpoint of the, the, the institution, like that was neat, but, and, and it seems like that's something that uh, getting a handle on that, um, seems like it would be a better way forward, especially if we move to an environment where the NCA is, I don't want to say devalued, but deprioritized as uh, like the, the one and done rule has made it a little bit of sort of a, a single year way station for the very best, like, you know, young basketball player. It's another underappreciated thing about basketball is how actually good talent identifiers are at picking out who really the best players are going to be at a very young age. And this is not, this is not a new thing. If you, if you can forgive me a filibuster for a moment. Uh, it's a study that I've done a few different times, a few different ways. And I've gone back and looked until like 1980, maybe even earlier, as far back as I could find like the McDonald's all American rosters. And you look at it like this is 24 high school players going back 40 years 40 to 50 percent of the of the players in McDonald's games get were guys who got drafted in the NBA. Now, if you think about the number of players who go into college and like the that you're you're picking out like 12 of the 40, 50, 60 who get drafted in two rounds of the NBA draft as 18 year olds, I think you're doing pretty well. Um, anyway, uh, the the point being is like the 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 the, the very the Scoot Hendersons of the world kind of bypassing college, I think will fundamentally change the college game. Um, and yeah, but I would argue on the other hand that now with NIL, if Scoot Henderson wanted to go to college, he could get opportunities to earn comparable money to what he's making with G League Ignite um, if he goes to certain institutions. So I, I think it could have alteration effects, but I think it could also drive kids to want to go to college and you know i think 
when Jalen Suggs hit that buzzer beater a couple of years ago versus UCLA, and it was like that. What a what a shot! What a moment! And Jalen Green decided to proved, go to the- proved he was a winner. Banked in a half court shot. Dude, draft him first overall. Anyway, sorry, I'm not. I'm not still bitter about those arguments. Those the, the those dumb dumb arguments. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, but like Jalen Green, you know, played in the G League bubble and he did well, and he ended up going higher than Jalen Suggs. But I think if you ask Jalen Suggs or Jalen Green, who had like a more enjoyable, more fun year, like Jalen Suggs would probably say he did. Like there is something in being back on a college campus full time. You, energy you have on a campus the the community like the just sort of the vibe so to speak is is really refreshing um in a lot of ways and i think kids that don't get to experience that that do do miss out like it's a it's a once in a lifetime experience that you have in your formative years and so maybe kind of the some of the 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 rule changes the, the nil sort of the the program development stuff that you're doing maybe closes the gap a little bit. So it's not, uh, it's like, well, okay, you're, uh, you, you're having to, to, you're having to go to class. Uh, well, college is cool. Well, you're, you're not able to get, to get uh, compensated for your, for your talent and contribution. Well, college is cool. And like how many different things that college is cool makes up for. And then like the NIL and the, some, some of the other programs you're working on maybe, can close that gap a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I think for sure. And the thing I would say, it's, it's just refreshing to be, you know, when you're in a professional environment, it's a lot of those guys kind of come in, they have their people around them, their agents, their handlers, their, you know, buddies, their managers, whatever it may be. And it's, you have 15 players, but like everyone kind of does their own thing on this after they're, leave the building whereas in college like these guys are going to the women's volleyball game together or hanging out in the cafe together and you just kind of that connectivity and that camaraderie um is is really unique to college i think and it's it's a lot of fun to to be around and i i credit you know coach blakeney and our our staff rob volanis tyler thornton steve onley like They've recruited a really, really good group of guys and high character guys where I really enjoy being around the players and the staff every day. It's like not one of those situations and we've both been in situations where it's like, oh, you go into an office and you're like, oh, God, I don't want to see this person today. Or, oh, if I have to deal with this player, it's like and it can be really draining and and it's uh, it hasn't been like that at all. And we have a really great group of people here that that it's been a pleasure to work with. So last, last topic. And, and then I, you've got practice in the morning, so I don't want to keep you, you too long, but, uh, yeah, if I fall asleep, all... if I fall asleep tomorrow at our six thirty in practice, I know who to blame. blame me. Yeah. Well, so, um, I'll, I'll, on the side, you, you have, you have started what I think is a, uh, a, a, a pretty, pretty neat effort. Um, that uh, I just kind of wanted to give you a chance to to plug before uh, let you go. Just if if uh, uh, yeah. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity uh, to talk about scouting and scavenging. So one of the things, and we had a lot of these conversations when we were in Milwaukee together. You can kind of 
on the one hand, right, you're living your dream. You're working in the NBA. You're getting to go to games. You're sitting in on trade discussions. On the other hand, it can be a very draining existence. You don't get to spend a lot of time with your family. You're always on call. The You know, you don't know when you're going to be needed or when you're not. There's a lot of like sitting around waiting for someone to maybe utilize you or maybe not, but you could be there for three hours waiting for that meeting to start and then it may never happen. Um, and I think one of the things that I found was I, I didn't feel like I was giving back or, or making a difference. Like I was spending so much time just occupied. How do I move up in the, my career? How do I get to the next level? Like, Oh my God, if I don't watch this extra game of G league film for a potential two way, like what are the bucks going to do without that report? And like, you just get, that wasn't very fulfilled. But the other thing too, is it's hard to like commit yourself to volunteering I did Big Brothers Big Sisters in college and it was like every Tuesday four I would go to a school and spend an hour with with the kid that I I was mentoring but okay uh, we have a road game this Tuesday oh and then the following Tuesday I'm on a scouting trip and then the following Tuesday we have a community appearance and I didn't want to be the type to like commit to something and then be like oh wait never mind I can't go so I've been trying to think of a a way to kind of satisfy that need to give back while also doing it within my schedule. And I had seen a tweet probably about now six, seven years ago. I still don't know who wrote the tweet. I've been trying to find it. Uh, you're former director of basketball research. If you want to be the director of Twitter research for scouting and scavenging for like two days and see if you can dig up this tweet. It was from someone that covered the Yankees who said, I uh, collect my unused hotel toiletries from my travels and donate them to a veteran shelter at the end of the season. And I was like, oh, that's cool, but never really acted on it. And then I was sitting in Las Vegas in December of 2019 at the G League Showcase, surrounded by robes and slippers and exquisite bottles of shampoo, lotion, soap. And I was like, man, there's so much here that I could, and I travel so much, I could start collecting and doing what that guy did. And then I was like, well, I've built up a network of people in the NBA and college and G League. Why don't I ask other people to get involved? So created scouting and scavenging with the purpose of encouraging teams to collect unused hotel toiletries from their travels for donation to underserved communities. We've been able to do over 2,500 pounds worth of donations since our founding, primarily through a partnership in Newark, New Jersey with their food relief program. Um, it's been really, really cool to see different teams and different coaches get on board with the initiative. And it's something that we all take for granted traveling as much as we do, like, Oh, a bar soap, like whatever. Um, but a lot of times it gets thrown out, even if you haven't used it or not, because they have to kind of change it over for sanitation purposes. And every time we deliver these supplies, whether it's to a homeless shelter or a food program, a food bank, the people are so grateful for it that you're like man it, it, it's really like a, a great feeling and um you know we have like a scavenger of the month we have different partners that we have um that help out with some stuff but it's it's really easy to get involved you just put a box in your house as you go on the road you pack some stuff in a carry-on and collect it in the box and then donate at the end of the season but um i appreciate you giving me 
the platform to talk about it. It's something I'm, I'm very passionate about. If you want to give us a follow, I actually don't think you're following us officially on Twitter, Seth. Um, I might have to get that corrected. Uh, Are you sure? At Scott, I, I, I don't believe so because I looked earlier tonight, but maybe uh, at Scout Scavenge on Twitter, at Scouting and Scavenging on Instagram. Uh, our website is currently in development. Um, so we will get that to you, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an easy program, an e-program and, uh, happy to, if you want to get involved, you know where to find us on, on social media. Well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll lie and say I follow it from my burner account. It's not true. <laughs> I do. And, 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 and busted right at the end of the pod. Thanks, Danny. Uh, uh, Danny, this has been this has been a lot of fun. I, I really uh, w- wish you best of luck in, in the, the 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 new job. I'm I'm anxious to hear whether on you know on this podcast or just when when we, when we chat more about it because I think it's a it's it's a fascinating area um, just in terms of of you know something that, that that kind of professional teams have started to get into a little bit, and I think it's 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 due time that college teams do too is is treating the player as a as a whole person not just a uh, uh an athlete so very interested to he- hear about progress of that over over the years but uh, thanks a lot for for coming on and uh you know being so candid with your experiences yeah thanks for having me seth this was uh this was fun it's crazy we've talked for almost an hour it didn't feel like it it kind of just felt like two old friends kind of catching up well yeah we didn't start telling telling stories of the times I beat you in Sporkle yet, so it's probably the, uh, the the best place. Yeah, to then uh, yeah, we have to cut the yeah. What, what was that? Uh, yeah, sorry, I'm losing you, Seth. <laughs> uh, D- uh, Danny Marks of, of Howard University. Dad, thank you so much for joining me again. Uh, hope hope to talk to you again soon. All right, talk to you, Seth. Thanks, folks, for listening. I will be back uh, later in the week with uh, with Randy Sherman of Radius Athletics. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna we'll, I, Similar but very different topics as we sort of start to move towards the NBA season and uh, getting game day content. But thanks for listening and talk to you all soon.